agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hi, Mike. So I thought today we had a bunch of great listener questions, and I mm-hmm. thought we would uh, try to get to some of those, address some of those. And so uh, if you are ready to go, I thought we just plunge right in. I am ready. These are amazing questions. I'm looking at them again and you, now. <laughs> and, you know, some of them are very sort of of the moment and others yeah. are kind of broader things that we could do whenever. So I thought it would make the most sense to start with the questions that are kind of more focused on what's going on right now and then just kind of work our way down and see what we get to. OK, sounds great. All right. Um, well, I'll start us off. OK. Um, Andrew writes in and asks, uh, after Alan, Dershowitz, sorry, after Alan Dershowitz argued that anything a president does in the public interest in the name of his reelection is not impeachable, does this increase the likelihood that the next Democratic president will be able to investigate the president and his children over any concerns of corruption? What do you think? That's an, I think it's interesting. Now, I think there are, there are two parts, obviously. You, uh-huh. you can either accept or not accept Dershowitz's ridiculous argument. Um, and obviously it's pretty clear what I and anyone who has studied the constitution at all would come to believe. But the larger point, of course, is that the argument is out there now. And it mm-hmm. was made by somebody who used to have a reputation for being a, you know, a honorable and reputable guy and on one of the biggest stages there, there is. And so what does that mean going forward? What do you think, Kristen? Well, you know, when it comes to what Alan Dershowitz was arguing this week, I had kind of, I had very divided views on it. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that part of the question first. Um, and I'll just kind of walk you through what I was thinking. So, you know, every day, like most people who, you know, listen to the show and are following along with what's going on, I, you know, I work a full-time job. So a lot of what happened during the day this week and last week with the impeachment trial, I had to come home and catch up on. And it sort of leaves you at a disadvantage because you don't actually see what anybody says. You have to kind of dig for it. And what you do get at the end of the day is a bunch of pundits who are, you know, on cable, you know, cable news or they're, you know, writing op-eds and in this newspaper on that website site and they're talking about what was said and they're 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 painting a picture of what was said and they're you know imposing their own views on it and they're shading it and coloring it in a way that is that they think is palatable and i think um you know one of the things that i found particularly frustrating about this is the fact that for a long time i couldn't find exactly what he said because mm-hmm. what i was seeing was seemed so divided so i went back um the next day and i looked and it's funny because all I could think was, Alan Dershowitz, you dropped the ball here. Because I, I, so I think what a lot of Democrats were saying, um, they were presenting the straw man argument that was basically they were presenting what he said as something he didn't say. Um, but 
I went back and I did find the, you know, the moment where he said that what the president does is essentially not impeachable. I think a better argument and the argument that I think I would have made is that we can't necessarily impeach the president for for something that we think he was thinking. Um, and I and I sort of imagine that that's where he was trying to go with this. But what was what came out was something very, very different. So the second part of the the question, I mean, he said what he said, I think, is ultimately yeah. the, the conclusion so, I, mean, I came to. And you have to accept it to be, to be clear and to take away all the, the straw men and so forth. That what what he said was and, and I think you'll agree with me on this. Uh, the yeah. essence of what he said was if the president has not committed a crime, a statutory violation of right. the law. And if he believes that what he is, the criminal, the non-criminal act he is performing is in the best interest of his getting reelected, which he also believes is in the best interest of the country, then it is not impeachable. So, I mean, right. basically, the, the president can do anything that's not a crime so long as he can make any kind of a rational argument that it's for the country. And not for him, because what Dershowitz pointed out before said if if Trump had made some sort of agreement about getting like ten million dollars for Personal a Trump hotel, financial gain, yeah. right? That that was what he said, and and I and I I followed that. Um, I I understood that point, you know, even though the rest of it kind of got garbled, I think, and it was a poor argument. It's not the argument I would have made, but it was the argument that he made. Um, but in terms of increasing the likelihood that the next Democratic president would be able to investigate the president and his children over any concerns of corruption, um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. How could it not? Think, and that's the whole point yeah, to me. Yeah. That's why that's such a dangerous argument, because if you're just saying, well, the president can't be held to account for anything that just doesn't happen to be in the statute books is I think that's that's clearly at odds with what the framers intended for impeachment and removal. And so therefore, I just think it that's what surprises me is that so many of the people who are glomming onto this argument are people who you would think would care deeply about what the framers thought. But apparently their their you know loyalty to present day political outcomes is greater than their loyalty to the framers i you know i think this this makes me question look looking at this question this makes me question um in my mind how this will impact other situations where something like this arises because as much as people want to point fingers at donald trump and, and again i'm not necessarily comparing him to to other presidents and but I think it's it's hard you consider the implications of impeachable offenses this sort of quid pro quo stuff that the democrats are alleging has happened before I mean this is something that happens in foreign policy um and I think that and I I can't remember if it was Mar it might have been Marsha Blackburn somebody made a statement um after one of one one day this week one weekday this week um she I think it was her she was making a statement that any time that there's a foreign policy argument that the other side doesn't like, they're going to try to impeach the president. And I don't think that that's true. Um, but I think that a, a different way we could take this is how are we going to fix this issue in the future? Because this is something that presidents have been doing for a long time. I mean, I just, I just read an op-ed the other day that was written in, I believe, 2014 that called President Obama the king of quid pro quo. And I think this is something that has happened, um, at least in, in recent history. And so I think that what Alan Dershowitz says in, in this whole trial, in essence, brings up a lot of points um, that we need to probably reassess. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, that's probably the best answer I can give. I'm going to agree and disagree. I certainly agree that, I mean, the whole idea of quid pro quo is something for something. And so, yes, when we do things in foreign policy, when we work with other countries, we expect something for something that we give them. That's, that's, that's how could it be other than that? So I think it's a straw man and disingenuous for some Republicans who are saying that this is the same as that. It's, yes, it isn't the same in that something was being asked for in exchange for something else, but that's not what Democrats are alleging. What Democrats are alleging is that the something that was asked for was a personal political favor, and that's what makes it problematic, to say the least, and I would argue impeachable, uh, actually. And so conflating those two things, I think, is, uh, is, uh, is disingenuous. And that's, that's what, on the left, I think a lot of people are upset with hearing that, well, it happens all the time. No, it doesn't. Well, then how would you, okay, so how would you characterize, let's, let's go back to the, I guess, the height of, of the Clintonian Democratic Party, you know, approaching 2016 when Hillary Clinton um, was Secretary of State. And there were all of these allegations that the Clinton Foundation was receiving all of these kickbacks and that there was sort of this quid pro quo exchange. I mean, I think it was it was pretty well supported. It was something that was never adjudicated. It was something that was never really brought up. I think it, you know, it's funny because when I first started hearing a, a lot of this talk about the Clinton Foundation or even G- uh, Joe Biden sort of negotiating this sweetheart deal for his son. Sort of some of these things, I, I do think it lo- it raises it, it ri- raises some of the same issues that we're raising now with President Trump, where there's sort of this personal and pol- or or in the case of the Clintons, a political favor that's being exchanged for some foreign policy, I guess, decision, um, or in some cases, money. I mean. It, I do think that it's the same thing. Um, it may not be the exact same set of circumstances, but I do think that that's what Republicans are are trying to argue. And I do find it frustrating when, you know, I, I think a lot of Democrats are sort of painting Donald Trump as this corrupt president. And this is the first time this has ever happened. I don't think that's the case. I believe this has happened before. Um, and I think this happened in, in recent history. But again, we're not talking about that. We're talking yeah. about we're talking about what happened with Donald Trump. And and like I said in, in the Saturday show, um, I think what Lamar Mar Alexander said when he chose not to vote um, in favor of witnesses is spot on. Yes, something happened and it was wrong. And I think it's wrong for Republicans to pretend like they didn't think it was wrong under President Obama or President Clinton or, or President Bush, whatever. Um, because I think there's a lot of this divisiveness going on. People saying, well, it was wrong before, but it's not wrong now or vice versa. And I think if we're going to hold our noses, you know, to the fire and we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of rid the executive office of this sort of level of corruption. Now, what better time than now? But this is something that can't be opportunistic, depending on who's in office. Yeah, well, and it's really too bad that the uh, that the uh, regulatory body that's in charge of investigating a lot of these election claims, the FEC, uh, has uh, is unable to act because the Trump administration has just decided to not appoint enough members for it to fill vacancies so that it can act. And I think that is, uh, that is absolutely a, a huge problem. And that's not something that happened under the Obama or the Clinton administrations. But yet uh, President Trump apparently just doesn't see the point in appointing FEC commissioners. And I, I think you would agree that we need, uh, we need an FEC that actually can investigate and take action on some of these uh, allegations regardless the FEC, of... 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, and, and again, you know, like I've, I've said in the past, I don't agree with everything President Trump does. I don't agree with him, you know, having saying the things he said in the call to the, the new Ukrainian president elect. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think I think it speaks to, to bigger issues about quid pro quo. Um, you know, I think either side pretending like this doesn't happen um, and things like this don't happen. And to some extent, there's not personal gain always. But I mean, I, I think it's impossible that you would rise to the level of president of the United States and you wouldn't be getting some sort of personal gain, whether it's political. Um, you know, Dershowitz mentioned financial uh, financial personal gain. Yeah, I, I think it's questionable when you're talking about the things like the Clinton Foundation and stuff like that. In this case, it seemed political in nature. I think in the case of Obama, it's sometimes Bush, it seemed political in nature. Um, but I think the question moving forward is what are we going to do about it? All right. Uh, moving on. You want to take our next question there, Kristen? Yeah. So, okay. So there's a question um, that's asked and you probably figured I would, I would ask about this because the, the, the whole idea of social media fascinates me and it's sort of the realm that I work in every day, but Trump's social media presence really fascinates me because I have very mixed emotions about it. So CR Bowen 44 asks um, on our subreddit, um, does the next president basically have to have an active social media presence? And will the usual briefings and addresses seem too distant and elitist and not as accessible if he or she isn't active on social media on, in the way President Trump is? I think that's a great question and pretty timely. What's your take? Well, you know, and also there were, there were actually a couple of questions on there kind of related to that was, was Terry's yeah. question about whether, you know, this kind of behavior becomes the new normal. And of course, that's social media and otherwise. but. You know, I, I don't, maybe this is the triumph of, of hope over experience in this sense. I don't know, but I, I certainly hope not. I think that Donald Trump is able to pull off things for better or for worse, almost always for worse, that normal people can't because he is Donald Trump, because he is, has a decades, a lifetime as a real estate huckster, uh, because he has his own damaged psyche and personality, and he can do these sort of things that would just not come off as authentic or not get the same sort of traction if a, a, a normal, differently damaged president, because I think they all have something wrong with them probably, uh, were in the office. So no, I, I think, I hope that Donald Trump is kind of an outlier in this sense, and he just happened to be the wrong guy at the right time, if you will, to take advantage of this. But that we will see, uh, regardless of who wins, well, obviously, if he wins in 2020, you know, but regardless of who's president uh, after, after Donald Trump, we're going to see a return to a less crazed Twitter social media presidency. Well, let, let me ask you a follow up question to that, because this is something I've thought about. Um, just I mean, if you put aside sort of the entertainment value of his of his Twitter feed, which is thoroughly entertaining. I mean, I you know, I don't always like what he says, and I think it's kind of kooky, but um, to say the least. But, I, you know, it, it is entertaining. Um, but putting that aside, um, let me ask you a question. If Donald Trump were to wake up tomorrow, this will not happen, I guarantee. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to go about this all differently, and he were to roll out daily briefings, um, and he were to sort of bring back um, more frequent press conferences, um, and, you know, he, he were to, you know, deliver more addresses directly to the, to the people and not necessarily on Twitter, would you put more stock in that? 
Or uh, would that mean more to you? Well, to me, I, not necessarily. If, if, if he keeps on lying in the same way that he does and, and inciting the sort of polarization that he actively seems to, to, to revel in, uh, no, it wouldn't make any difference at all what the, what the forum is. But if he decided to behave like a, like a decent human being, yeah, then that, absolutely I'd put more, put more stock in, in what he had to say. Anytime a, anytime a, a, a liar stops lying as much, I'll, I'll you know, try to <laughs> give him more benefit of the doubt to the extent that there's a track record. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, before we get to our next uh, question, Kristen, I want to mm-hmm. just thank our sponsors for today. Our first sponsor is Empower. And if you are interested in saving a lot more in 2020, well, Empower can make that a reality. Because with Empower, saving and managing your money, just dead simple. They have a set it and forget it auto save function. It lets you put in your weekly savings target. Then every day, Empower studies your income and spending and automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account, where, of course, you're going to be less likely to spend it. And that's the goal. In addition, Empower can actually negotiate your phone and cable bills for you, which I think personally is really cool. And they've also have live human being coaches who you can text for individualized recommendations. So if you want to save big this year, do yourself a favor, download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or the Play Store. I have and so have over 650,000 other people. It's a lot of people. And even better, Politics Guys listeners, hey, you get $5 when you use offer code politicsguys and reach your savings goal. Visit empower.me slash politicsguys for more details. And also SaneBox, you know, I talk about them before because really it transformed my ridiculous inbox, which just you wouldn't even want to see. As your email comes in, SaneBox keeps only the important messages in your inbox. Everything else gets directed at distracting stuff to your Sane later folder. And that means, hey, right away, you know what you have to pay attention to now and what stuff can wait. There also are a bunch of other great features. I love Sane Black Hole, love the name, where you can put messages from those annoying folks you just never want to hear from again. And Sane Reminder, super useful. It lets you know if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. So see how SaneBox can remove distractions from your inbox and make it just a better place to be with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash politicsguys today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash politics, guys. Okay, so our next question for today is from, I guess it's from Scott. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, Scott uh, wants to know, and uh, well, anyway, Scott wants to know, always wants to know, what consequences (laughs) we believe are in order for those who were involved in seeking and obtaining the FISA warrants, given the findings by both the Inspector General and the FISA court itself that false information was used and exculpatory information was was withheld from the court. Uh, why don't you take this first, Kristen? <laughs> well, do you say FISA? I say FISA. Oh, it's like FISA, tomato, okay. tomato. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're probably right. It's like GIF or GIF, right? Okay, I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. I have no idea. I've heard. I've heard both. I was like, well, I don't want to just start saying FISA, and it sounds like I'm trying to correct because I don't know what is correct. But um, so. I figure I figured I'd see a question from Scott on here at some point and it would have something to do with this. You know, I have to 
sort of a 10,000 foot view of this question when it comes to FISA warrants and FISA court and, you know, the FISA judge, there have been several points along this journey with what's happened with obtaining the FISA warrants where I've had to stop and ask, why do we even have a FISA court? Um, And I think I think a lot of I think a lot of Republicans have asked that. I know some Democrats who have asked themselves this, like, why is this a body that exists? Um, And I think that you know, what's happening now, we have, you know, obviously what comes to mind is Carter Page. Now he's suing um, because of what happened to him. But, you know, the question is, given the findings by both the IG and the FISA court itself, that false information was used and exculpatory information was withheld from the court. I, I don't know what the outcomes will be. I hope that we sort of see the end of the FISA court. Um, there's there's a part of me that that thinks that it's just this totally unnecessary layer of government um, that really impeded this process and sort of um, wronged people like Carter Page. Um, but I, I, to be honest with you, I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say because I'm not sure what your opinion about the FISA court is and FISA warrants. Well, um, yeah. Democ- well I... I do believe that there is a need for a FISA court. There are certain instances where that secret process needs to be in place for national security reasons. So I support the existence of a FISA court. But as to, but because of its secrecy, that means mm-hmm. that the standards have to be so much higher, which means that the right. penalties for people who would use that secrecy uh, to their to their advantage to, you know, do things like, for instance, present false information and withhold exculpatory information. I think that those people, anyone who has been shown to have done that, number one, needs to lose their job. And number two, needs to go to jail. And not just Mm -hmm. to find, I mean, we need the the penalties for doing, for for abusing the public trust in this secret proceeding like this need to be so severe that even the threat, even the thought that you would get caught doing this would just make you say, ah, there's just no way I'm going to do that. I'm not interested in spending 20 years at Leavenworth or something. So I think we need to crack down incredibly hard. I think there needs to be a thoroughgoing congressional investigation of the whole system. I know that the, I know that the, Director Ray has talked mm-hmm. about changes and so forth. I, I think that's not enough. I would love to see just a a huge congressional investigation of this because I think what happened with the FISA court, I think what clearly has been shown to happen is, is tragic and horrific and absolutely needs to be changed. Yeah. And you know, another point is that I think a lot of people didn't even realize that the FISA court existed, which kind of goes along the lines of it being so secretive and that, you know, the the standard does need to be set higher. I think it was something that was sort of swept under the rug for a long period of time. And it was it was funny when all of this information about Carter Page and this, you know, this obtained dossier and exculpatory, you know, every everything that was going on, I think people started to finally take notice and realize that. In some case, I guess in more extreme cases, like in mine, I realized, well, what, you know, you looked into it and, and you think, well, why, why does the FISA court exist? And so you start to investigate why it exists and why they do issue warrants and, and you know, why any of this is happening. Um, and I guess to your point, you have a less extreme view is that it should exist, but that we need to be setting the bar a little higher. And I think that's important to note that, like, people didn't even know that this body existed. Yeah. Um, and people, savvy political people didn't know it existed. It kind of came out of nowhere. I 
I remember when I for I'd heard of of the the acronym FISA, and I actually but I actually had to look up and see what it meant when when this news started to break a few years ago because I had no idea what FISA stood for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know I I think. Um, I think I think to some extent you're right. I think that's I think that what what you're putting out is more likely to happen, I guess, to answer the question. But, you know, yeah, I guess in a, I guess in a perfect world, according to my view, I would like to see it gone. <laughs> I, I, I get that, certainly. But I, yeah. uh, I think if we are going to have secret courts, then the standard needs to be incredibly high. Right. Right. So we'll, I guess we'll move on to the next question, uh, which is an interesting one from Sabacon. So uh, Sabacon asks, what do you see as the possible outcome for the Democratic Party? Are they going to continue bending to the pressure from the vocal far left and setting the agenda to legislation that they will not be able to pass? So that's sort of question one. Are they going to be able to maintain the majority in the House? What will the court look like with another four years of Republican control of the White House and Senate? Assuming the failure to remove Trump and his re-election, will we just have another four years of impeachment efforts? It's a lot of questions, yeah. but hopefully you can kind of tackle them, um, you know, as somebody who is, uh, I guess, who would not like to see this scenario play out. God, no. Your opinion matters. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> well, I actually, I, I, I'm sort of conflicted because on the one hand, I think that presenting, there's sometimes a good reason to talk about legislation that will not be able to pass because it, uh, the word I'll use is normalizes it. It gets people thinking about it. And so maybe you introduce something knowing that it won't pass today or next year, but it all of a sudden makes it a part of the conversation and it doesn't seem so incredibly far out there, you know, like with something like say a universal basic income, which, you know, now all of a sudden is part of the conversation in a way it wasn't, you know, five, 10 years ago. And, and so I see a value in doing that sort of thing, in introducing legislation like the HR1 for the People Act, which is a mm-hmm. sweeping set of institutional reforms, which I love for many reasons, or even something which I don't love as much uh, and which I dislike for some reasons, like the Green New Deal, because it mm-hmm. gets people, I mean, it's a platform for it. But that being said, if that's all you do, then that's hugely problematic, obviously, because then you're just giving up possible incremental changes in the right direction for pie in the sky, things that don't happen. So that's kind of my conflicted view on that. I think we need a little bit of both. Um, overall, Congress exists to move the country forward, I think, and the past legislation in the interests of the people. And so while it's important to throw out those moonshots every once in a while, you need to keep your eyes focused on what can we do for the people right now. And so I think we need as much of that as we can get. And I think with Nancy Pelosi in charge, we're going to we're going to continue to see that, which is, I think, largely what we've seen out of the Democratic House. Um, in terms of maintaining the majority, my guess is that the Democrats are going to be right around even in 2020. They, you know, they're, they're going to be holding a lot of seats that they picked up from Trump leaning districts. I wouldn't be surprised if they lost a couple of those, but I don't see a swing so big where they don't lose their majority in the House, though some people would say you nominate Bernie Sanders and all of a sudden a lot of moderate House members maybe fall by the wayside. But I think it's going to stay a a Democratic majority, though maybe slightly smaller. 
and what the court will look like with another four years of Republican control of the White House and the Senate. Oh, my God. Well, Donald <laughs> Trump has already appointed, I think at this point, more judges in not quite four years than President Obama did yeah. in about eight. In eight, so, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be pretty bad from from my perspective, which, of course, I, I would assume the question's being asked because to point out the progressives, hey, wouldn't you like a better shot at getting more balance in the courts for judges going to be around for 20, 30 years? And, yeah, I get that. So it's a percentages game. We talked about this on the Saturday show. You know, if Bernie Sanders is president, he's going to appoint judges that are going to be a lot like the same the judges that Joe Biden would appoint, at least people who would be able to make it through uh, a Democrat, or sorry, a Republican Senate, which I'm pretty sure it's going to be. So, you know, I, there's not much of a difference there. But of course, I would say the probability of Joe Biden beating Donald Trump is higher than the probability of Bernie Sanders. So do you roll the dice on that? If you're a progressive who feels like Joe Biden is just going to be a different type of awful, maybe you do. Maybe you do. I'm I'm more of a centrist, so I don't roll the dice on that, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I get the reasoning there. All right, um, let's see here. Moving on, we have Arc Teacher, yeah. and some of the names are, these are, a lot of these questions are from the Bipartisan Politics Group, and I know I, I practically gushed about it, but when, when somebody suggested we set up a subreddit, I thought, geez, I don't know, and it was it's a pain in the butt and all that, but... I am so glad I did because it is it is often one of the highlights of my political day going in and reading the comments and so forth. It's been it's been really great. So thank thank you all of you who've just been part of that group. All right. So our teacher asked a question that really I love this question. I knew you would. I yeah. thought and I thought Mike is definitely gonna ask this question. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a uh, good one. If you had to narrow down your political perspective or philosophy to a set of two to three dominant principles or understandings, what would they be and what would be number one? And that, that I love the questions that really get, get me to think about mm -hmm. what my first principles are. And so here's what I came up. Okay. Principle number one, people are basically good. Number two, people are basically weak. Number three, people often vastly overestimate their own expertise and intelligence. Those are my three main principles. And I think that leads right into my ideology. Because I believe that uh, people are basically good, I'm ultimately a fan of democratic government letting people decide. But because I believe that people are basically weak, or a lot, or in many cases weak, God knows I am, that I, I know that it's important to have strong institutions. It's important to build in incentive structures so that people's weaknesses don't overtake them, which is why I'm not a libertarian, because it seems to me that libertarians far too much downplay the weakness that people, that, that, that people have inherent in them, and they are not just rational utility maximizing machines. And finally, that idea that People tend to overestimate their own brilliance and intelligence, especially smart people. Uh, that, that, to me, argues for incrementalist government, not trying to do too much at once because you get the smartest people in the room and they want to do big, important things. And then all of a sudden, the law of unintended consequences come in. And that's why I'm a Burke. So I think from those three principles, you can pretty much get my entire political philosophy. 
<laughs> I think that's pretty good. I think that pretty much highlights who you are yeah. politically, at least as I know you. Um, so I am actually just seeing this question for the first time now. I, I was, you know, looking through, so I, I wasn't as prepared to answer this, but I, I do have... I, I immediately thought of some, um, I guess, some political philosophies that that sort of sum up how I feel. And I also love questions like this because, frankly, most of us don't think about this on a day to day basis. And and another thing that that we don't think about is how much we change over time. I mean, I, as I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how I was 15 years ago as um, a student, a high school student, and then a college student. And you know, I've always been a, a registered Republican, but I think one of the things um, that's changed over the years is how Republican I am or what type of Republican I am. It's it's changed as I've gotten older and, you know, things have happened in my life. And I've become, as you've said, more and more jaded, I guess. And I've seen how government really works. And I've, you know, participated in the way government works and in campaigns. And um, so I think my my outlook has changed. But I think um, the first thing I would say, and, and this is, you, you mentioned libertarianism, and I, this is going to sound very libertarian, I guess. But um, I think the first statement I'd make is that people are best served when they are free and also autonomous. So I don't necessarily assume that people are weak. I think that there are weak people, but I also think that there are strong people. I think that that's not for the government to decide. I think that's for, I'm all about individual liberty, individual freedom and autonomy, especially when it comes to political choices and to choices that affect our daily lives. Um, So I think that that's probably the most important overarching political yeah. philosophy. I, I've, I've said, um, I have a Republican friend of mine who, again, is a different kind of Republican than I am. And um, she, I was kind of going back and forth with her. We were debating about putting ourselves into boxes. And I, and I, you know, it's funny because saying you're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever puts you into a box. But, you know, I think really part partisanship is very, very nuanced. And so I think this is going to differ from not just from Democrats to Republicans, but just uh, amongst party lines, you know, or with I should say within party lines. Um, and so that's that's something that I believe. The other thing that um, that I would say sort of dictates my own political philosophy is just the word acceptance, um, not necessarily of how things are politically. But I think one of the things that's happened to me as I've gotten older is that I've become more accepting of the fact that most people don't think like me. I don't think like most people. And that's OK. At some point. I mean, that's why we do this. Pod, that's why I do this podcast is because I feel like we should come together and talk about these things and that there's really um, there's forward momentum when we do come together. And I think there are lots of missed opportunities and it's it's a shame that we miss them. But, you know, in government, there are lots of missed opportunities to open up dialogue and to be civil and respectful and to come to conclusions, to work towards goals together. I mean, um, I have uh, someone in my family um, who is the complete polar political opposite of me. And this was this happened years ago, but we had a conversation. And at one point she looked at me and she said, you know, we have we actually have a lot of the same goals. We just have different ideas of how yeah. to get there. Yeah. And I think I think that that, you know, if I could choose a, a, a second overarching philosophy, it's that it's that we sort of do have to come together um, and we do have to work towards some, you know, bipartisan goals. So I think that the first one is sort of my first place that I think people are best served when they are free and autonomous, especially to make those personal choices and, and political choices. And then the second is that ultimately we have to find a way to come together. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I think those kind of sort of shade my political ideology. Yeah. I think I think in the end, you you have a little more faith in the rationality of people than I do. Uh, yeah, so, I probably but, do. But but, but, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also I wonder the extent to which my being you know raised Catholic focuses in on that whole weakness of people, yeah. sort of you know we're all filthy sinners, that kind of thing. I don't know, but anyway, uh, okay, uh, let's move on to. Uh, well, who do we have next here? Robbie. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Who's, speaking of filthy sinners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Robbie writes, I consider myself right politically, but I am also an evangelical Christian that border uh, that borderlines on considering myself a never Trump Republican. I'd be interested to know what you guys think of a significant majority of evangelicals, not only tolerating Trump by, in many cases, enthusiastically supporting and defending him. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I have thoughts. Yeah, I, I like, definitely first. have some some <laughs> thoughts on I I get the argument for kind of holding your nose and supporting Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, because if you know, if, it seems to me for a lot of evangelicals, the big one of the big issues, if not the big issue, it often becomes the uh, the the abortion issue. And if from if your first principle is that abortion is a destruction of a human life. And you feel that there's one party that's, you know, willing to countenance that and another party that isn't. Well, then if literally, I guess, millions of lives are being destroyed, are being killed, how, how could you not just hold your nose and support the lesser of two evils in that sense? I get mm-hmm. that argument. And I, I don't I disagree with that first principle. But from that, I understand that. But I guess it's harder for me to accept the the sort of enthusiastic support of such a patently amoral man. Uh, The message that that sends, I think, that the end justifies the means. And that just seems like about the most, uh, that's about the most Machiavellian, at least Jesus kind of line that I could could imagine. And so, honestly, to me, I think it's just people who want to feel better about their decision. And oftentimes the way to do that is just to say, He's my guy full in and I just don't want to have to deal with the, you know, with the conflict, the inner, inner turmoil. So I'm just going to decide that everything he does is wonderful. You know, I, I actually, I agree with you uh, on just about everything that you said, if not everything you said. Um, but I have, I have some thoughts about this too. Um, so I, you know, I consider myself a Christian, although not an evangelical Christian. Um, but I, I know many evangelical Christians who, who have wrestled with this and some of them are never Trumpers and some of them aren't, some of them are, are wholehearted, uh, Trump supporters. And, you know, I think this is something that a lot of them wrestle with. I think it's something that a lot of them wrestled with in 2016. Most of these people supported Ted Cruz and they didn't all support Ted Cruz. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of my closer friends who are evangelicals who ultimately voted for Trump and support him. Now they were supporting Ted Cruz. And you look at, you know, you, you look at some of the things that, for example, Ted Cruz has said about Donald Trump. He's a, he's a pretty staunch Trump supporter at this point. And I think he's fallen in line for probably some of the reasons that you laid out. And, you know, at the risk of, of, you know, sounding a little detached because I, I can't necessarily identify with this demographic. Um, I think that this is, this is the rationale that they're using is that ultimately I have these goals. Um, and I think again, to my point that I spoke about earlier, um, I think that, 
a lot of us fit into different categories and, 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 you know, we have different a hand in this box and a foot in this box. And I think people sort of prioritize what is important to them. And for a lot of evangelical Christians, what Trump personifies is more important to them. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just what they believe than the outcomes. Um, and I think to some people, it's not that way. I think they they look at, you know, what's coming down the road and they see a far worse future for themselves. And, you know, they, they obviously it doesn't make them any less faithful or more faithful. It just they've prioritized things differently. So, yeah, I have some I have some thoughts about that. But this is something I, I that I've asked a lot of evangelical Christian friends who have supported Trump um, because it's confused me, too. I, I don't you know, I, I don't come from a, from that same place. And so I'll continue to ask them, especially yeah. as we get closer to 2020. I think it's something we need to ask. Well, and I think, too, that there are, like with anything, there are evangelical Christians who I would call Christian. And then there are, like in any group, there are evangelical Christians who are just horrifically bad human beings who call yeah. themselves evangelical Christians, you sure. know, and that's a, a whole different story. But uh, yeah. I, think, I think we got time for a couple of more questions. So yeah. uh, next we have Heather who wants to know what publications we read and why we read them. And I like, Heather, that you focus on reading, because honestly, and maybe my, my, my fees-a-fies thing gives you the, the uh, clue that <laughs> I, I get almost no news from TV because I just can't. I just can't. Um, and so for me, uh, the, only not, the only broadcast sort of news that I tend to get at all is a few minutes in the morning when I'm making coffee, I'll have, uh, I'll have NPR on. And that's for like literally 10 minutes, if that. And it's mostly local stuff with the occasional news break thing. But my day almost always starts out with the Associated Press uh, because yeah. I found it to be the most straight ahead, just the fact sort of thing. And that's where I go. And I just want to know what happened in the last day. Um, from there, my daily news routine goes next to the Washington Post. And usually over lunch, I'll read through the Post and uh, uh, annotate various articles and so forth, generally for the show, or even when I'm not doing the show, it's just a habit that I have now. I used to use the, uh, the New York Times for this purpose, but I found that the New York Times just declined in a lot of ways. And I think the Post mm -hmm. is a lot better. For opinion stuff, I like uh, Bloomberg's opinion page. I think they, they have made an attempt over the last few years to hire some really good folks on both the left and the right. And it's, uh, I, I found it to be really useful. Also, I check out the Wall Street Journal's editorial page and their opinions. I like the Atlantic for, uh, and yeah, that's obviously left to center Vox. I have some problems with, and I just have to roll my eyes a lot, but they also do a lot of good kind of wonky explanatory stuff. If I can just sort of filter through some of their, well, progressive, craziness sort of stuff. Um, uh, New York Magazine has a side site called The Intelligencer, which I love for political commentary. Andrew Sullivan writes for them, who I love. And Jonathan Chiat is, writes for them as well, who I think is great. And then finally, I love Tyler Cowen's Marginal Revolution blog. And so there are some other places, but that's, those, were, those are the places I go all the time, every week, without fail. Yeah, I, I love this question and I love it for the same reason, because, um, you know, this I guess this listener focuses on news that we read, which is important. But, um, I, you know, I I've said on the show that I try to absorb as much I, I'm like a 
constant absorber of information, not just news, but just anything remotely interesting. I, I absorb it. I, you can often find me at work. I, I always have uh, headphones on and I'm just constantly listening to podcasts and, you know, in the car, that's, that's all I do. Um, you know, I listen, I, I read and I, and I listen to a lot of the same things that you do. I love NPR. Um, I also listen to NPR. The other um, two other podcasts that I listen to are Left, Right, and Center, which is, I think, KCRW. Mm-hmm. And um, it it's often, it tends to lean a little more progressive, I'd say. Um, the, the arguments presented tend to swing a little bit more left. I think it's because the podcast is actually produced in Los Angeles. Um, and then I also listen to other political podcasts. The Ben Shapiro Show is one that I usually tune in for, not just because I, I agree with Ben Shapiro. Sometimes I don't agree with Ben Shapiro, but I think his take on things is usually pretty interesting. Um, in terms of what I read, um, my go-to is also the Associated Press. And and a lot of times when I prepare for these shows and, you know, I voice my frustration at trying to find just pure journalism. I just want a timeline. I just want numbers and data. And, you know, and and I find that the, that the AP is usually a really good source for that. In grad school, I just constantly relied on the AP and I continue to do that um, for that sort of unbiased take on things. Um, my other go-to that I have subscribed to for years is the Wall Street Journal. Um, love the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think a lot of conservatives do, but to me, um, it I, I think the Wall Street Journal does a really good job, especially with their opinion pieces of sort of laying things out in a, in a fairly balanced way, although it does tend to swing a little bit to the right. Um, I do also read um, The Economist when I can. That's sort of a, I guess, a, a second tier something. If I have time, I read it. And um, so the other publication that I read, and it's an online publication, um, is is something called Governing. And because I'm interested in public policy, what I love about Governing, if you don't read it, you really should. Um, but it, it's basically an all policy bipartisan publication. Um, so they talk about whatever is going on in terms of um, domestic policy, foreign policy, they unpack it. But what I love about it is that it really is truly bipartisan. And I don't think you can say that about a lot of publications nowadays. Um, and then, of course, you know, just in terms of like trying to get the story, the Associated Press, like I said, the Wall Street Journal, um, I rely on Politico pretty heavily, which tends to swing left. But like I said, I I mean, I, I read everything and I watch everything. Um, in terms of what I watch in uh, cable news. I, I watch a little bit of everything. Um, I've had a lot of people say, well, you probably just watch Fox News all the time. That's not true. We we bounce around. I watch Fox News. I watch CNN. I watch um, network news. Um, I, for a long time, I didn't watch network news and I've kind of come back to it, especially during the impeachment trial, just to see, you know, what kind of the, the pulse of the nation, what people are thinking. So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a news. Yeah. Uh, a newsy person, but um, for punishment. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, know, I, I also I know. wanted to mention <laughs> a couple other conservative sites that I often uh, go to. I don't think a, a day, well, a two day period certainly doesn't go by where I don't check out national review. Uh, that's yeah, dating yeah. back from my, uh, my conservative days, but I subscribe to their daily newsletter. I also subscribe to, uh, uh, the New Republic's daily newsletter yep. as well. Sometimes they they come together and just sort of fight it out uh, in my in my in <laughs> inbox there. Uh, but uh, and uh, also, you know, if if somebody is looking for a a good source of conservative news and they don't want to pay for a Wall Street Journal subscription, and and you know, I get that. I would I would definitely recommend the Washington Examiner. I think they do some good work. Their yeah. uh, their opinion page is definitely tilted considerably to the right. But if you mm-hmm. think that 
all conservative news, aside from the Wall Street Journal, is, is sort of junk, daily news. It's not the case. I would say check out the Washington Examiner because they, they play it pretty straight when it comes to the basic news. And they definitely obviously have the uh, right of center editorial opinion. But I, I, I trust them to, the, you know, uh, to, to a fair extent, and I do check them out on a regular basis as well. All right. Well, you know, that's actually a little longer than I thought. So yeah. why don't we leave it uh, once I start thinking about, you know, things I, I read. I think we're both kind of omnivores in that sense. But We uh, are. Yeah. But anyway, so we hope you enjoyed the answer to that question and all of our other questions. And we do really appreciate your support. And if you would be interested in getting ad-free versions of all of our shows as a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash politics. Guys, we have other stuff there as well. Check it out. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our bipartisan politics subreddit, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, we would appreciate it if you could subscribe and also to share shows with uh, people, friends, enemies, cohorts, you name it. We'd just share it. That would be great. Thank you. The executive producers of the Politics Guys, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Chris Matheny and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.